listening to theoutdoorstation.co.uk. The recent outdoor show at Birmingham's National Exhibition Centre offered us a great opportunity to catch up with some old friends, people who we normally have to speak to over a scratchy telephone line. For this podcast, I'm joined by Ronald Turnbull, and Ronald and I found a quiet bit of cafe space on the edge of the conference floor and sat down to talk about his new book, Three Peaks and Ten Tours, and much more besides. We talked about the grey man of Ben McDewey, Einstein's theory of relativity as it applies to hill walkers, and quite a lot about fruitcake and custard creams. But I started by asking Ronald all about the new book. This was an amusing one for me because I'd never actually been propositioned by a publisher before. Um, Cicerone Press said that people kept bringing them up and saying, um, have you got a book on the three peaks? And they'd said, well, if you mean the three peaks of Yorkshire, no, we haven't. And they'd say, well, actually, we meant the three peaks of the three countries. And Cicerone would say, well, we haven't got that one either. So he felt that there was something that he had to, a gap in the market that he ought to be supplying. But the fact that he asked me to do it kind of suggests that he was looking for something a little bit uh, off the straight and narrow. The the National Three Peaks event gets a certain bad press because it's antisocial in some ways. It means driving down Borrowdale at 6 o'clock in the morning and waking everybody up in Borrowdale. And it involves a lot of driving around in cars. So although I did it straight for people who want to do the Three Peaks, and I hope they will do it, and then I hope they'll go and do lots of other things afterwards, having been inspired by it, But also I've done a sort of sideways take on the Three Peaks and tried to point out a lot of things that maybe people would do afterwards or beforehand, which would be even more fun than the Three Peaks, and which might not involve waking up people of Borrowdale at six o'clock in the morning. Now, um, you talk about um, the Ten Tours, which of course is a famous uh, um, walking challenge in the West Country, but there's much more than the Ten Tours and the Three Peaks in here, isn't there? Well, the Ten Tours had to go in because that was the title. It was such a good title, Three Peaks, Ten Tours. I really had to scramble for that one because I, you know, I thought, of, I'll do the Ten Tours one day. And I sort of thought, oh, I'll do that. I'll do that in the spring. And then I found, you know, my deadline was approaching and I hadn't been anywhere near the Ten Tours. So I went down there in February. And the Ten Tours is an, is an army organized expedition for groups of six teenagers. And there isn't six of me. And also, I'm not a teenager. My readers may be surprised to learn. So I made up my own version, but there are 16. That's the other puzzling thing about the 10 tours. There are 16 of them. And the army tells you the day before you start which 10 of the 16 you're going to be doing. So I just chose my own 10 to make sure that it didn't take me anywhere I'd ever been on Dartmoor. And just went down there in, um, in February and just started walking. Now, I think it's safe to say that you have a slightly different approach to any other walking book writer, I think. Uh, and, and this book has it. I mean, there's a, a section here called A Weakness for Bleakness. So what was that all about? Uh, well, you have to buy the book, of course, and read it. Uh, but that, basically, that's the chap- chapter about moorland walks. Um, I went and did the Lykewake Walk, which is a strange thing because it used to have one or two hundred thousand people a year doing this walk. It was amazingly, you know, it was as popular as the London Marathon and the Carrymore International Mountain Marathon and going up Everest, all added together. Um, And it's just kind of collapsed lately. They're sort of 
maybe 100 people a year are doing it. And I wanted to see why, and I still can't work out why. It's a lovely walk. Um, but that particular chapter, the feel of it is about setting off at dawn, 5 o'clock in the morning, just across the vast heather moorlands. You don't have to spend all your time galloping up big, sharp, rocky mountains. Yeah, I just I do enjoy this, this wide, empty countryside. And actually, the Lykewake Walk, because all these 100,000 people have pounded a huge, great path, and because they've now gone away, the path's firmed up again nicely, and it's just a very pleasant, enjoyable walk. But you do have to enjoy being in the middle of a great 12-mile-wide circle of heather with nothing to see except a rather sinister standing stone. The walk has a, a sort of atmosphere and ethos which really appeals to me. It's called the Lykewake Walk after a dirge, a 13-verse dirge about the sufferings of the unfortunate dead soul in the afterlife. And the, the first person who walked this walk was actually singing this dirge as he went along. You have a tune going through your head as you walk. And this one's about how in the afterlife the, the, um, the winds, the, the prickly bushes will prick you to the bare bone if you haven't been sufficiently virtuous in your previous life. And this song was just going through his head as he walked. Isn't it quite appropriate? And if you do complete the walk, they send you a, a black fringed card of condolence and you can join the Dirges Association. It's a 38-mile walk, and it's pretty well flat. The first six miles are downhill, gently downhill for the first six miles. So what's to complain about? It's got a cafe six miles from the end, provided you get there before the cafe places. I just had a very nice time on that one. But that's one of the more straight bits of the book, because, I mean, having, having wandered all over the country doing fairly well-known things like the Welsh 3000s, I then sort of tried to let the imagination fly a bit and try and just add a little quirk to things to see if it made them more fun. Like it's fairly conventional to do the Lake District, three, the Welsh 3000s, which is a cracking walk. But if you add in the, the scrambling on Triffin and the scrambling on Bristley Ridge, it makes it even better because, you know, variety is an important element in any long, challenging walk. And what I was looking for was variety in suffering. It should not just be very, very tiring. It should also be rather scary. And it should also be kind of confusing and puzzling because you're trying to navigate your way across a bog in the dark. So you see, variety is the most important thing. Now, um, earlier on this year, or towards the end of last year, TGO magazine did a, um, a kind of piece that you wrote about doing three peaks by public transport, which I must admit um, quite appealed to me. And, and that theme is in the book as well, isn't it? Yes, yeah, and that was my take on the, on the Three Peaks in a car thing, because, I mean, you can do it without peeing in the hedges in Borrowdale, but it seems to be obligatory, and I thought it would be, you know, more green and respectable to do it by public transport, but I also thought that it was going to be quite a lot easier, because it's impossible to do it in 24 hours by public transport. Even if you're, um, you know, even if you you own the railway, even if you're Richard Branson, you just can't, you know, you, even if you flew, you couldn't just because the, the trains and the buses don't just meet up. So that means you give yourself, I gave myself 48 hours. And that meant that the actual walking didn't have to be hard pounding up and down each hill by the shortest possible way. Given that I was using public transport, it meant that I could go up one side of the hill and come down the other side of the hill. And also, it meant that I could be a little bit, I could have some fun with the public transport. 
like I started off from Penny Pass at 8 o'clock in the morning and I went up Snowdon. I, I went over Crib Gok because I wasn't in a hurry. And I came down the Rid Du path, or is it called Rid the? I don't speak Welsh. And I got to the bottom and there was this little railway line that wasn't marked on my map because they just built it since my map was. And there was a steam train sitting in the platform going, whoo, whoo. <laughs> and I said, when is this train leaving? And they said, it's leaving in 10 minutes. I said, where is it going? They said, it's going to Carnarvon. So I got onto the steam train. And it was, um, it went at 15 miles an hour average. So it meant I missed my connection at Carnarvon. And the end result two days later was that I found myself going up Ben Nevis at 9 o'clock at night instead of 6 o'clock at night, which was when I planned it. And uh, so I spent the night on the top of Ben Nevis in the rain in a bivy bag. That wasn't terribly enjoyable. But uh, the other thing about doing it by public transport is that the public transport stops at night. You know, it runs through the day and it stops at night, which means that you have to do at least one of the hills at night. Um, generally, the middle one usually, which will be Scorfell Pike. So I sort of got the last train into, into Windermere and took a bus through to Grasmere and set off up Scorfell Pike from Grasmere just as the sun was going down on a beautiful evening and everybody coming down off the Langdale Pikes giving me funny looks as I was walking up onto the hill. And then I, I slept on somewhere up near Scorfell Pike at the top and then came down in the morning and caught the, the Borrowdale open top bus the next morning. So I've gone all the way across it as an overnight journey. So this is you know, much more fun than just going up and down from Borrowdale in a rather tight time schedule in order to get back into the car. I, one of the important things about that is the sense of fun, isn't it? Because, I, I mean, I don't know about you, but I look at some of these um, walkers who are setting incredible records for hikes on the uh, you know, American trails and elsewhere. And I sometimes think, well, do they actually get time to look around and enjoy what they're seeing? Well, Chris Townsend does, because I haven't walked with him. But, you know, you meet him and he's just away with the fairies. He's obviously having a lovely life. <laughs> I, I did read uh, Bill Bryson on the Appalachian Trail, which made me not want to do the Appalachian Trail. I don't know, I've been one of these solemn guys that you, who sort of fl flash past you, trailing snot, blood and mud on a fell race. And we look very solemn and we're not looking around because we're just looking at our feet. But we're still having a lovely time. And we experience the, the gravel and the mud with an intimacy that you don't when you're just walking along in boots. Because every footfall, if it just microscopically wrong, you're away. You could even be over the cliff. I, I did the Ben Nevis race about oh, 15 years ago. I can't believe it. I was, I, yeah, I was up and down Ben Nevis in an hour and 58 minutes. And that means coming down Ben Nevis absolutely full tilt by the shortest possible way and the, you come down about 2,000 feet on bare rock with a bit of scree lying on top of it that normally you do very gingerly one foot at a time and this was just foot down, slide for a metre or so, leap off and then hit the ground again three metres further on and three metres further downhill and because there were people in front of me and I was overtaking them I was just having the most marvellous time and I. You know, I never saw anything of Ben Nevis that day, but I got a very, very intimate, detailed view of these little rocks and these tiny patches of screen. And then it comes down, and then you do a thousand feet down a very, very steep bog, which is amazing because it just sucks your feet. And you have this kind of suction sensation. It's like being a fly and walking upside down across the ceiling or walking, you know, straight down a horizontal wall as a fly pointing downhill. 
because the bog just sucks you as you go down. And then you get onto the road at the bottom, and there's a mile of this road, and your legs just collapse, and you realise you've been doing yourself the most terrible damage, using up all the goodness in your body, and you're not going to be able to walk for the next three days, and you've still got a mile to go. And if you stop and walk, lots of people are going to overtake you, and you're not going to get in in the crucial two-hour schedule, which is such a great thing to do. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've been one of these dreary people, and actually they are having a good time. Now, back to the book. <laughs> There's a lovely section here that says um, everywhere has three peaks in it. And to prove it, you've got the three peaks of Somerset. Explain yourself. Well, now that's an easy one, because Somerset is a lovely county, and it's got seven ranges of hills. Um, I mean, it's something to do with the attitude. Uh, the first one I did was the Three Peaks of Lancashire, which is quite easy because it's a hilly place, but I thought this was, this was good. And I recruited a Lancastrian guy to choose me the Three Peaks, and I came along and pretended I was really keen on the Three Peaks of Yorkshire and really got his, got his goat. He really got involved in making sure I got a Three Peaks of Lancashire, which was not only longer and tougher than the Three Peaks of Yorkshire, but also much more beautiful. So that was fun. But no, you obviously don't know Somerset. It's a lovely county. Oh, it's a lovely country. Uh, county. I've just never thought of it of having peaks in it. But there you go. I need to, I need to kind of uh, well, re recalibrate my horizons. I guess. Well, I mean, if I'd been taking this seriously, I would have gone for the, the, the three peaks of Peterborough, which is an idea that I'm going to sort of put to Trail magazine one day because they're based in Peterborough. I'm told there are peaks in Suffolk, but... Uh, I mean, actually, I remember getting very excited a couple of years ago, walking in Suffolk and finding I was climbing a hill. I think it was 200 feet above sea level. Yeah, well, you can get excited anywhere, especially if you give yourself some kind of silly motivation that's going to bring a smile to people's faces. Um, I can't quite think how you would actually make something in Suffolk that was worth travelling to Suffolk for, but maybe if I put my mind to it. I think you have to be a, a lover of bird life. That, that brings another dimension to it. Well, but there's the sand dunes as well. I did do a, I did a long-distance walk, actually, in, in Norfolk once, and I got very, very excited because I crossed a contour line. I got into the sand dunes, and I crossed the 10-metre contour line. And, of course, the sand dunes are quite... I mean, they're demanding walking, and the view is quite different from anything you get in the Scottish Islands. You just see sort of 12 miles of sea and 15 miles of shingle and a huge wind farm. Now, uh, just in case we're giving people the wrong idea, I mean, there are, there are big hills in the book as well, of course. There's the, the Larry Groove, for example. That's just a cracking good walk. There's no... I didn't do any silly business with the Larry Groove because it's just a lovely walk. But, uh, yeah, I did it the old-fashioned way, which is Bray to Abbey Moor, rather than getting somebody to drive me in a car to Lynn of Dee. But that's... It gives you some nice walking in the forest and some nice walking on the riverside. And it makes it a nice length as well. It's so. fantastic walk, isn't it? Yes. I, I, a lot of people are kind of... I don't know whether it's because um, people have to be a bit cautious because of the weather or, you know, magazines have to be just a little bit careful of warning people, but I, I keep meeting people who are just a bit frightened by that walk. The Larry Grew is a terrifying place. In the middle there, you're, you know, you're 15 miles from civilization, if And it can snow any day of the year. And, you know, if... if six feet of snow falls on you. You may think you're tough, but you're not tough enough to walk out of the Larry Groove through six feet of snow. There's a bossy. Um, There's also the Grey Man, isn't there? There is indeed the Grey Man, yes. I've just... Um, am, I, am I plugging Three Peaks Ten Tours? Because I've just delivered a book to Milray's publishing of... 
I just dropped it off on my way down of Derbyshire. A very small, exclusive publishing house. You can have a great time trying to find their books. I've written a cultural biography of Ben McDewey, which has a quite a long section on the grey man of Ben McDewey. And I've, I've done some original research, and I found out something about Professor Norman Colley, which was really... I've been better not found out, but am I allowed to tell them, or should I, should I try and make them go and buy the book? No, no, keep going. Well, I mean, the story is that he brought back this story about the footprints and the terror and how he'd run away down the, the mountain. And everybody says, and he was a professor of chemistry, which he was. He discovered neon. You know, the element neon yeah, yeah. that makes neon lights. Anyway, he was a very serious man. And everybody says, if you knew his personality and character, you'd know that he wouldn't be making up a story of this sort. And I went through his works and discovered that previously he'd gone on a boat trip in Ireland underneath a mountain in the west coast of Ireland in a boat in these underwater caves. And there was a legend already in these caves that there was a sea monster living in these caves. And because the caves, it was a still day, but because the caves kind of catch the waves and echo them, the boat kind of slopped around in the darkness in these waves and the candle went out. And Professor Colley said, ah, that must be this monster they keep going on about. At which point the boatman very quickly took him back out of the cave and into the open sea again. And that was the end of his trip underneath Sleeve League. So you see this professor does have previous form as an inventor of monsters, which is a very sad fact because I'd much rather believe in the so great man of Ben McDewey than not. But I'm afraid it very strongly suggests that Professor Norman Colley was having a bit of a joke on us here. Now I know there's at least two people I know doing the TGO challenge this year who picked that route just so the hope they might meet the grey man so I'll have to make sure they don't listen to this until afterwards. You can buy them a copy of my book as a reward for when they finished but he hasn't uh, been seen there well he was yeah somebody Alexander Tunian met him in 1948 and he'd taken his service revolver to shoot ptarmigan to save having to go out to Glenmore for the shop. And he had a huge figure in the mist behind him, stomping away, crunching in the screen. He turned around and it was towering above him and he pulled out his revolver and he shot it. <laughs> and the grey man hasn't been seen since. <laughs> so, oh dear. So maybe the grey man is now extinct. And what's the name of this book again? It's called The Life and Times of the Black Pig. And it's published by? Mill Race. Good. Well, like, we'll... like, you know, the, the water yeah. that runs beside a stream. And you'll find them on the website. They're slightly cheaper on the website. Well, we'll keep our eyes open for that. No. And he's not going to... I mean, only just handed over the, the CD yesterday. So he'll have to wait a while, I'm afraid. Okay. We'll keep our eyes peeled about that and maybe talk to you about it close to the date. Now, um, you know, you don't just walk in the UK, do you? I was talking to Colin Saunders recently about the Tatras Mountains. And, um, looking at his guide, I realised there were number of photographs by one or two of them. So, I mean, how much of the year are you walking, one? Oh, it's terrible. I, I, I'm walking inside my computer probably for three weeks in every month. Um, and I don't, I don't get abroad very much, actually. Just the Tatras. I, I just fancy the Tatra. I went out there with my boy. I can't sell articles about the Tatras. The magazines don't want them because there's lots of foreign stuff. They want stuff, you know, they're like a slightly silly article about walking through the Larry Grew or the seven, seven hundred metre peaks of the mountains of Morn, sell it in a flash. But, you know, a nice serious article with lots of photos about the, the ta high Tatras of Slovenia, which are cracking hills. Can't make any money out of it. So you're, you're walking and writing for, for 
12 months of the year one way or another, isn't it? Well, 12 months of the year, but yes, but I'm afraid probably only a week in each month. If, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a sad thing, really. And the more efficient I get, the less time I spend walking. You know, I can, I go, I can, you know, I walk through the Larry Grew and it's a chapter in this book and then it's, I sell it to a magazine and then if I'm clever, I sell it to a different sort of magazine, which means writing it three times. So, you know, I don't just walk the, the thing, I, I write it on, you know, I walk it on, on my pen three times as much as I walk it in real life. Now, there's but, another section in the book, uh, uh, Three Peaks, Ten Tours, which is called Survival. And a chapter called Time and Space, The Fundamentals. Is this, uh, is one all getting philosophical? Well, no, I've always been very philosophical. <laughs> um, I mean, there's much more relativity in long distance walking than there is in Einstein's physics. Like, I mean, just certain things that it's best to understand in a kind of upside down way. Like, if you want to go a very long way in a short time, the first secret is to start very slowly because if you start fast you'll get exhausted halfway and even if you do finish it you're going to have a very horrible time whereas if you start slowly especially if it's a group event then if you keep going at the same speed about halfway through you'll start overtaking people and by the time you get to the end still going at the same speed you'll be overtaking people who are absolutely miserable people who are crawling or hobbling or hopping on one foot waving an enormous blister in front of them so it just—it's very good psychologically, but also if you want to enjoy a very long walk, you have to—you have to learn things about pacing yourself. It's—it's uh, it's fairly well-known stuff, you know, about pacing yourself and starting at the right speed. Um, I suppose it's—it's it's novel to point out that you can go twice as far as you usually do. You know, if normally you feel very tired after a 15-hour day on the hills, you could do a 30-mile walk if you prepared yourself mentally and got the timings right and got into some trail shoes instead of some big heavy boots and gave yourself something you really wanted to do. Now, um, lots and lots of hill walkers still seem to spend most of their time in the big flesh pots of uh, Snowdonia or elsewhere, but um, there's a lot of, as you said earlier, there's a lot of other walks here that are well worth doing. Um, 100 miles at once, two days and nights over Exmoor, that must be a cracking walk. Uh, well, that was that's the Long Distance Walkers Association's annual 100 miler, so it's in a different place every year. And I really wouldn't recommend it. It's a very, very painful experience. They do it every year, and 500 people sign up for it. Um, yeah, it's, it's always 100 miles, and it's 100 miles off-road on paths. And they, they guarantee you 12,000 feet of ascent, though sometimes there's a bit more. And you start at 10 o'clock on the Saturday morning and you have to finish by 10 o'clock on the Monday morning. And one of the rules is that if you stay for more than two hours in any checkpoint, you get timed out. So you're actually not allowed to go to sleep. 100 miles is too far. I mean, nobody's feet can manage 100 miles without getting really bad blisters. And if you actually take the full time, you know, you're hallucinating the second night. So one of the keys to walking uh, a long distance is to walk long but not fast, nice and gently. But there's also uh, some advice in the book about eating as well. Well, there's no great detailed advice about eating. I, I had a whole chapter about eating in my book with Biffy, which was very silly. So this time I've just got a fairly short chapter, which is mostly sensible. But the secret of eating on a long-distance walk is to eat rather a lot and to keep eating. And if you don't feel like eating, that isn't because you've had enough. It's because you've been walking too fast and scorched your appetite. Um, 
but on this hundred miler, because there's so many other people there, you keep catching up with the person in front. Um, yeah, the first one I did, I got terribly misled by an old guy with white hair who was, I thought he must know what he's doing. And he, about 50 miles in, there was gently downhill bit for about six miles. And he was running this bit. So I thought, well, look, he knows what he's doing, obviously. So I ran behind him. And I only discovered that his scheme was to do the first 50 miles and then stop for two hours and then amble the rest. So he'd actually run me into the ground following him down this six miles. And then he stopped and I had to go on because I wasn't going to sit still for two hours and amble the rest of the way. And that meant that I couldn't eat anything. I tried to eat something and it came back up again two miles later. And this was a complete disaster and I sort of staggered along for another 12 miles and then I had to stop in a checkpoint and stay there for three quarters of an hour and go to sleep for 20 minutes and have lots of drinks and then finally I could eat something. And presumably that was more than a packet of custard cream. Uh, well, they feed you very well on these in the long-distance walkers. It was probably homemade fruitcake. And it's such a shame to have a beautifully homemade fruitcake and only have it in there for 10 minutes. It deserves, deserves to stay down there a bit longer. But this is a thoroughly sordid aspect, and it's only one chapter of the book. So, I mean, really, it is much more about enjoying yourself. Though, you know, you have to understand about all the different ways of not enjoying yourself if you're going to enjoy yourself to the full. Now there's more than one old-fashioned classic in the book, isn't there? Um, yes, I mean there's the Larry Grew, there's the Lightweight Walk, there's also the Derwent Watershed, which was the one which these um, guys from Manchester between the wars did. In, uh, they tended to do these things at night and in the middle of winter. And you still can apparently, I was just talking to yeah, somebody who works for Cicero and Press, my publisher, her husband was doing it last week. It's called the High Peak Marathon. And they do it. They start at 10 o'clock at night to make sure they get the pleasure of the darkness at the end of the day. And they were doing it last week, which is March at the moment, for those listening in the United States on the Internet. So they've really got the spirit of the old style. I actually did it in, in uh, midsummer, And uh, I even slept on the way round in a bivy bag. So I did it, you know, enjoyable as well as with the old tradition. But it's nice to go in the footsteps of these old guys in their sort of their britches which were so impregnated with peat that they could just take them off and stand them in the garden to dry. They never needed to hang them up. Um, yeah, I've got the, the old county tops in Cumbria which is another nice walk which I really enjoy. It's a 38 mile walk and it's much more enjoyable than the 3,000 footers which is what the one that a lot of people do. Which is a very nice walk but just the old county tops is an even nicer walk and I did that one as well I did that one in uh, on the 1st of March last year so as to get the pleasure of going up Helvellyn in the dark I started at half past three and I, just getting to Helvellyn as the just the light was beginning to seep across the snowfields bitterly cold and everything and then coming down into the sunrise and then up Scorefell Pike in the beautiful clear crisp March day with hard snow on the ground and view all the way down into Wales and then, I mean, I did, March was perhaps a little bit early. Well, it was good for the sake of the snow, but it meant that I got to the summit of Coniston Old Man just as the light was going again. And that gave me about five hours of walking in the dark at the end of the day, which was maybe about two hours more than I really needed. But walking along the Coniston to Swirlhow Ridge in the dark by starlight on, on snow was just wonderful. Great. Well, um, it sounds a fascinating book, and um, 
recommend everybody to rush out and buy it. It's full of the uh, lovely Ronald sense of humour as well that we have come to love. Um, any new big projects for 2007? Um, 2007, yes. Well, I've just had it in this, this book that I've just written and I'm going to start writing another one. I haven't really, you know, I haven't really started... I had a book deadline yesterday, so I haven't been thinking very straight, but... Uh, my son's just moved out to the United States, so I'm thinking it's time I went a little bit foreign. Uh, it's against all my principles, because, you know, there's still a lot of Scotland. And maybe I'll just walk across... I want to do a coast-to-coast across um, Caithness and Sutherland, because they have all these wonderful mountains that you never go on, because they're not on rows, and they're really wild. Um, yeah, I was looking at the John Muir Trail, and I discovered that you have to carry a fortnight's food and walk nine miles a day and this really it's a lot of custard greens it, it is it's not it's not really me carrying that much food and going that short a distance so i'm going to try and work out if there's some way of having fun on the john muir trail that would be a, <laughs> that would be a serious challenge wouldn't it? So, to enjoy the john muir it looks like wonderful country i can see a just big... walking nine miles a day you couldn't enjoy walking nine miles I think, a day i think you've got something there there could be a whole series of you know um, the PCT, have, having fun on the PCT. Or no, not the PCT. I c- couldn't walk for three months. <laughs> uh, or not on a packet of custard creams. I don't know why you go on about these custard creams. This is, <laughs> this is actually my friend Glyn who eats the custard creams because they're more calories for 28 pence than you can get any other way. And also they're very good calories per gram. But they do kind of get dry in your throat after a while, especially on the Pacific Crest Trail, because you don't have convenient streams, do you? If you haven't read the Book of the Bibby, you should do, because that's um, there's a lot of... uh, Is there a lot about custard creams in the Book of the Bibby? No, but it just sticks out. (laughs) But what about... I mean, um, I've got a whole chapter on food in the Book of the Bibby. What about um, Chris Bonington getting onto the high camp on... Either Annapurna or Everest, I can't remember which, but it says in the book. And finding that they got lots of stuff from their sponsors and it was all used up except for the whiskey and the sausages. And that was all they had in this high camp. So they had sausages flambéed in whiskey. Sounds (laughs) wonderful, yeah. I didn't think it sounds very nice at all. Um, I couldn't find this in his books, you know, I sort of read through them. And this was stuck in my memory because it's so memorable. What a meal. How they must have, you know, how horrible it must have been. So in the end, I wrote to the chap, and, and good old Chris wrote back to me and verified this, and said that yes, it hadn't been particularly enjoyable, but I'd remembered it right. Well, as, uh, we wish you well in walking in the States, and uh, there's still a lot of stuff in the States, that's absolutely true. Um, and, uh, there's England as well, there's this country called England, there's some nice well, there things is. in England I mean, one of my favourite walks in the Book of the Biffy is the one that started in Church Stretton and walked west towards... Um, have you, have you walked it? No, I've done bits of it. I hope to do all of it maybe this year, actually. Yeah, but the Across Wales walk, if you want to do it in a day, is a similar sort of walk. I mean, the Church Stretton start is fantastic and the Stiper Stones, which aren't on the Across Wales walk, but the Across Wales walk has such a wonderful atmosphere. All these lovely people giving you homemade flapjack and encouraging you and chatting to you about every topic in the world. You know, the first long-distance walking book is, is uh, The Canterbury Tales by Chaucer. And they, you know, all these interesting characters trekking from London to Brighton. And it didn't say how, how, how long they took over it. That doesn't give you the crucial 
speed and time data, but you know, telling each other these wonderful stories and having rows and arguments and encouraging each other. It's 58 miles, isn't it, London to, to Canterbury? I think we forget, don't we, that, um, I mean, even up to comparatively recently, people like Dickens used to walk incredible distances from his home in um, central London to his home in, uh, on the North Downs. And, uh, Gladstone, of course, was a famous walker as well. People had a lot in them in those days. Yeah, my next-door neighbour was the... the fifth most famous Scottish African explorer. Uh, he's called Joseph Thompson. He invented a gazelle and a waterfall. And uh, he really was my next door neighbour. He was a stonemason's son from my village. And he did a, one of his training walks was to walk from our village to, to Edinburgh in a day, which is 70 miles. And quite a lot of these old tracks still exist. So I, I did do that walk once just to sort of retrace his steps. And I also found his great nephew who'd never walked more than 30 miles in a day in his life, and that was 20 years before, and I'd brought this, roped in this poor chap as well, so he walked it as well, and he got a real shock and a real strong feeling of what it was like to be his ancestor walking across Africa. He, yeah, he didn't always walk 70 miles a day, but he, when it was necessary he did, and they ran out of water in the middle of, I don't know, the, the wild country somewhere north of Kilimanjaro, and so he just sort of told his Maasai, Porters that they were just going to do a 70 mile day to get to the waterhole and they just had to do it. I, I, I wish I'd been there to see him do it because I don't, you know, he, he says he walks it and you can't walk 70 miles in a day unless you have a very specific race walking technique. So if I do 70 miles a day, which I don't anymore, but when I did, I would be wearing lightweight shoes and I'd be running, uh, you know, I'd be jogging downhill and jogging the flat bits and walking the uphill bits. I couldn't walk 70 miles in a day, but he, it seems like he could. Right, well, I think um, our time is pushed. I think you're going to get dragged off again to uh, do a speaking engagement at some point. So, uh, Ronald, thanks very much, and uh, everybody rush out and buy Three Peaks and Ten Tours, and uh, look forward to talking to you again in the future. And I just about managed to get Ronald back to the theatre in time for his lecture. I was talking to Ronald Turnbull about his new book, Three Peaks, Ten Tours, Long Distance and Challenge Walks in the UK, Tools and Techniques, Roots and Reminiscences. It's published by Cicerone Press and sells for £12.95. Well, that's about all we have time for. I'm Andy Howell, and until next time, take care and happy hiking. This independent programme has been brought to you by The Outdoor Station, the exciting new way to see and hear free information about the outdoors world. If you're a blogger, or if you have a website, you can now incorporate any of these podcasts directly to your site, completely free. Visit our website, theoutdoorstation.co.uk, for more information.